Folks in the lobby can go ahead and make their way back to the auditorium, find our way to our seats. For those I haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Aaron Campbell. I'm also one of the pastors here at Redeeming Grace Church, and I just want to add my welcome to Matt's, particularly to those of you who are with us as guests this morning. We're so grateful that you would choose to come and be here as we worship our Savior together. Well, quick personal update. Um, before I begin with this morning's message, uh, just because uh, Colleen, my wife, also had surgery this past December, um, and so many of you are so kind to not only give towards that as well and continue to ask and pray. I just want to give a quick update on how she has been doing. This summer was a huge step up from a year ago or really the last 15 summers. Um, she recently finished physical therapy a couple months ago and is continuing her exercises to rebuild and strengthen muscle groups that have been damaged for years. She was able to do things during our vacation, like hiking and other activities that our children have never seen her do. Things like go on a roller coaster and um, some water slides. Um, things that haven't even been on her radar the last 16 years. Uh, the fall schedule and return to school um, mean a bit more stress and uh, tension in our home which don't necessarily play well with pain. Um, so she is still on pain medication and usually needs to lay down for the evening once we hit 4 or 5 p.m. And she has some upcoming appointments with uh, some sports medicine specialists, but we are really encouraged by her progress uh, so far. The big difference in what she is able to tolerate from a year ago or even now just a few months ago um, in the spring um, we can see differences and are so grateful to God um, for his continued healing through the gift of medicine um, and surgery. And we want to, just as Rita did, add our thanks for your kind gifts, for your practical care, um, and most of all for your ongoing prayers for her and for our family. Well, uh, over the last number of months, during our study on Romans that Matt has been leading us through, I'm occasionally bringing messages out of the book of James. I've titled this little mini-series that we hit occasionally, True Religion, highlighting the theme that we see in James that changed people live changed lives. And throughout his letter, James puts different scenarios, different uh, tests in place, the things that he says reveal our true uh, the genuineness of our faith. A couple of times we talked about a hearing test or how we um, listen to and receive God's Word and, and highlighted the reality that the preaching event is never meant to be just something that a preacher does, but it's an occasion for everyone who is part of the body to come prepared to listen and to receive what God has in store for us through His Word. The last message that I gave highlighted the reality that as important as listening is for each and every believer of actively receiving God's word, that our responsibilities as hearers and receivers do not end there. But he has called us to put what we hear into action, that we are to be doers as well. Um, that God's word is not primarily for information, but for transformation. Understanding God's word is not enough. Its purpose is to change our identity and our behavior. Again, changed people living changed lives. Which brings us now to the end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If you can, go ahead and open your Bibles there. The question has, James has moved from being hearers, and not just hearers, but doers calling us to action. What action is he now going to call us to? Well, this is what I think he's going to call us to as we read these verses. It's the fact that everyday stuff matters. 
the mundane, seemingly inconsequential decisions life is filled with are important to God. And they should be important to us. Our communication, how we relate to the needs of those around us, and the impact the fallen world has on our identity and what we value. God wants to be Lord over all of these things. So read with me now in James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Would you pray with me as we seek to receive God's word? Father, I'm aware of my need for your help this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to take your words and bring through them life today. We are dependent upon you, but we know that you are not a reluctant giver. So we ask that you will be generous with us this morning as we come. Help us to listen. Help us to hear. Help us to receive. And then help us to be doers of your word. For your glory, for our good, we pray this. Amen. Well, some compartmentalization in life is really wise and healthy. Think of uh, the, the man that works hard, the husband, to provide for his family, but also works hard to not bring his work and its stress and its burdens home with him to affect his time with his family but keeping a priority that his wife and his children are to have and to not have that bleed over and and corrupt that time with them. But as Mr. Tripp highlighted in the video, that type of segmentation of something distinct between work and school or um, home, that isn't how our relationship with God works. Family time, work or school, me time. And then God, well, he gets two hours on Sunday and maybe Wednesday night. If, if I'm free that evening or maybe 15 minutes in the morning to read his word and, and pray. That, that, that's not how the relationship with God works. Relating with Jesus isn't a compartment but it's the empowering presence that fuels how we relate with all of these other areas. The stuff of everyday life is important to God, and it should be important to us because life in Christ affects all of life. We're going to look at three areas of everyday life that James reveals as tests of our true relationship with God. We're going to look at our communication We're going to look at our response to the needs around us, and we're going to look at our relationship with the world. And for those that like alliteration, we put those in three C's. You can put that back up. Um, Communication, compassion, and consecration. Um, So this is where we're going this morning, just following uh, the three areas that James highlights in these two verses. Now, when we mention the word religion... I think it's helpful to say because some of us have different ideas of what that means. And and religion in these verses isn't referring to a set of beliefs such as Judaism or Islam or Scientology. But the integrity between what someone says they believe and what their actions reveal they are truly living for. Uh, Religion as used here refers to any external manifestation of spirituality, the specific ways that a heart relationship with God is expressed in our lives, or as the case may be here, fails to. It's supposed to display a new life relating with God and empowered by God. Now, throughout Scripture, we see many examples of God 
different times and in different ways, seeking to expose a disconnect in those who call himself his people between what they say they believe and how they are really living and acting. We, we see this in certainly Jesus' battle with the Pharisees and then many of his parables and teachings. We see this throughout the Old Testament as God related with Israel time and time again. And I want to read one of those for us this morning in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. God says to his people, what, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? I just want to pause there for a minute because it's actually God and you know, his relationship with his people that has helped establish these different occasions. The sacrificial system through Moses, the different festivals and celebrations... It's not like God has been unaware that folks have just come up with these things on their own. And he says, I don't really like this. These are things that have been part of their relationship. And yet God is saying, you know, there's something wrong here. You're just going through the motions and this doesn't work. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me, and I am weary of bearing them. These are strong words from people who think they are worshiping God, doing the things they think are supposed to be the motions they're going to go through to make him happy. And yet this is his assessment of them and how they are coming to him. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What we see in these verses is, is God calling his people to account because the things that these activities were meant to represent in being in relationship with God are actually Oh, they're hypocritical. They're betraying because their everyday lives do not match who they say they are living for. So just going through the motions is of no interest to God. He wants nothing to do with it and has strong words of warning for those who would come through their religious activities claiming to be close to him. And in our two verses, James echoes Prophets like Isaiah and Jesus himself. As he highlights the reality that religion is not about special religious activities. But it's about all of life. So let's look at the tests that James gives to reveal whether there is true life in God. He starts with our communication. The test of the bridled tongue. Again, I just want to read verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. We can show the first picture. This is a bridle. Uh, actually, it's a bridle on a horse. Just to be clear. The use of such device allows a beast that is bigger 
that is stronger, that is faster than any human being to be directed and steered in a desired direction by any rider. The bridle doesn't take away the horse's power or size or speed, but harnesses it for the rider's purpose, to take him where he needs to go, to carry burdens greater than he can carry himself, to transport him more quickly than he can travel on his own. That's the benefit of the bridle on the horse. James says the Christian's tongue is to be a bridled tongue. And in the case of the bridle of our tongues, our speech, our communication, we need to be clear that it's God who holds the reins. Our speech, our communication is to be used for his purposes. The bridled horse doesn't get to set his own direction, but goes where the rider directs. And God claims authority over our communication. He's not looking for vows of silence. Instead, he's looking for speech that honors and reflects him. Bridled communication is communication used for God's agenda. Be that at home, at school, at work, in public, or in a private conversation. Whether that be talking to someone face to face, or texting back and forth, or posting online. He says, if you're mine, your speech is to be mine as well. Now we're all aware that it doesn't take much for our speech to betray us. We can show the slide of the first sign. Beat diabetes by five junior frosties for one dollar. Something tells me there's a slight disconnect between the purported agenda of beating diabetes and the sale of five frosties at once. Unless it's to see who's clear and needs no further work on diabetes because you can take that, right? All right, next one is similar. American Heart Association cookout Saturday. Hamburgers, hot dogs, nachos. Add chili and extra cheese. Yeah, I think the desired agenda and the effect it ends up having, not exactly in line. Next, it is against the fire code to hang anything from this pipe. That's great, yeah. Next, all right, this one's a little harder to read. If you see someone drowning, it sure looks like an LOL. And then in real small letters at the bottom, call 911. Now, I think that's supposed to be some universal type of, you know, uh, sign for someone drowning. Uh, you know, both hands in the air. But it, it just looks like LOL over bacon, okay? So not quite the same effect. I think we have one more. All right, don't let worries kill you. Let the church help. This is just one example why we're not getting this kind of sign. Our, our words, it doesn't take much. It can be simply a slip that can betray us. And it can also be when our intended effect is realized that it can betray us. Words reveal the genuineness of our relationship with God because, well, frankly, we don't do very well filtering what resides in our hearts from what escapes our lips. Now, God's speech, his own communication is consistent with his character and with his actions. He speaks and it comes to pass. God utters worlds into existence by his words. His words are not separated from his will or his action. He does not lie. If we are to be like him, 
to represent him, to live for him. There is no room for empty or deceptive words. No room for speech that tears down those we are called to build up, whether it be to their face or behind their back. What does bridled communication look like? Well, here's one attempt. If we can go to the next picture. How do you like that? This is called the scold's bridle. This was an actual device used in medieval times where straps of iron, including something that would go into the mouth, would be fixed and locked onto someone's head because they really took this idea seriously. If you, if you don't have something nice to say, we're not going to let you say anything at all. Now, this is not the example that we're going for when we're talking about bridling the tongue. As we are with many medieval practices, just not the template we're looking to follow. But when God holds the reins, it should have an impact on what we communicate. Bridled communication, I I think, it looks like communication that's kind, that's patient, not boastful, arrogant, or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It's encouraging, seeking to build up others and strengthen them in God's grace. We don't have to wonder at what it looks like. It's revealed for us. True religion is revealed in communication that is used for God's glory. It is used for His testimony, for His truth, in ways that line up with His heart. Life in Christ will be revealed by those, by who holds the reins of our tongue. If we claim to be Christians and our tongues are not bridled, we deceive our own hearts. James says it this way, this person's religion is worthless. We can't skip over that. He isn't saying the person who is in this category has some work to do. He says his religion is worthless. It has no value. If you think you are relating rightly with God, but you have not a bridled tongue, this person's religion is worthless. One more picture. One that's not humorous at all. Here we have individuals that claim to be religious. And yet what utters forth from their mouths is hateful and spiteful and destructive. It's the clearest picture I could see of a religious that is utterly worthless. It has no value. Jesus declared that not everyone who calls out Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Even though they may say, didn't we do this and that in your name? The reality is only those that do the will of the Father will enter in. Many will hear instead on that day, depart from me. I never knew you. It's not about claiming to be religious, thinking we're religious that saves us. Here's the thing. It's really sobering. You don't have to be part of the clan to be totally earnest and totally self-deceived. Now, 
I imagine sitting here talking about this, some here have been convicted. Aware of how far short your communication falls from what God calls it to be. Let me plead with you. Don't ignore God's voice. If he is putting his finger on something specific, if he is revealing shortfall in your communication, things that do not give evidence to his genuine saving work in your life, his transforming work in your life, well, it would be just as foolish for you to avoid that voice as it is for the folks in that picture to think those white sheets equal righteousness. It's far better to be made aware today that your religion is worthless because today you can do something about it. If you find out on the final day, on the day of judgment, it will be too late. James is giving tests so we might assess the reality of our relationship with him today when grace is still available. Friends, your tongue is not your own. It has been bought with a price. Therefore, communicate in such a way as to glorify the one who has redeemed it. Life in Christ changes who is in charge of what you communicate. The second test, our compassion, test of caring for the needy. Again, let's read verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James, like other biblical writers, uses widows and orphans really as shorthand for those in need. It includes widows and orphans, but it isn't limited just to those two categories. It uses it to signify those who are vulnerable and at risk of being taken advantage of or abused. In ancient times, widows and orphans were especially vulnerable because the husband or father that, that would have been their protector, their provider, was out of the picture. And it's a time where there, there are no insurance policies, there are no police forces, there is no deadbolt for the front door. They were dependent upon the kindness and mercy of those around them. So in the Old Testament, God revealed himself as their protector, their caregiver. And then through the law and prophets, he called his people to be the same for those in their midst. Let's read one such example in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. Another vulnerable category. Giving him food and clothing. So love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Here we see not only the command to care for those and God's commitment to do so, we also see motivation that he gives his people to fulfill this command as well. Did you catch it? Because you too were sojourners. You also were in need and without a home. And I saved you. He's clearly not saying that the way to earn God's love is to take care of the needy. But because you were needy and God took care of you, brought you in, made you part of his family, you in turn should show love and compassion to those in need around you. What do you have that you have not received, he's saying. 
God delivered you to be his agents of deliverance. A similar passage just a few chapters later in Deuteronomy 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or to take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. He's saying, remember your former state. Remember your helplessness and poverty and inability to save yourself. Remember how much God has done for you. And then don't neglect those in need around you. Don't deny them access to the same grace and life in him that has undeservedly been extended to you. So you're aware, no change in policy, social causes are not the gospel. Social causes are not the good news of Jesus Christ. But meeting needs and alleviating suffering can certainly open doors for the gospel. The gospel's effects on our lives, scripture is clear, is to fuel and transform what we are living for who we are living for. Our life in Christ is meant to make a difference in the lives around us. It's not for us alone. Now personally, I I find the sterilized suburban American bubble that I live in has this amazing ability to desensitize me to the problems of the wider world. almost to the point where I start thinking that they're not real because they're not my experience. One of the reasons I'm grateful I've been able to travel to places like Bolivia and Zambia and Haiti is that when I'm there, I really have no way of avoiding the need, the problems, the suffering, poverty that is all around me because it's everywhere I look. Uh, I find those trips worth it just for what they do in my own soul. I pray each time that God uses it for those I go to serve. As we seek to meet practical needs, as I seek to proclaim His gospel, His good news, and the only good news that brings true and eternal relief But for my own soul, I would find it worth it just because of what God does as I'm there. But I don't have to get on a plane to see real hurt and need all around me if I'm willing to open my eyes and my heart. I would venture that most of us are far too comfortable and unconcerned with the needs that are closer than we think. Maybe we're ignorant, sometimes purposely so, of the plights of those without voices, without choices, without hope in their affliction, as James says. The widow, the orphan, the unborn, the victims of human trafficking, domestic violence, sexual abuse, the homeless, the prisoner, the persecuted, the refugee, the malnourished and desperate. The reality is I I don't know what it's like to be pulled over because of the color of my skin or to go through life never having known my father where my next meal will come from, where I'm going to lay down that night. I've never had to live in constant fear of those outside my door or those under my roof. I've never been so desperate that I felt I had no other choice. But others have. 
Others are there right now. Not far away. We can plug our ears and pretend that their problems aren't real or with God's power. We can do what we can, where we can. Maybe God is prompting you to go on a mission, to take a trip, join the relief team to Houston, or to fight against racial injustice here at home, to serve at Miracle Hills Women's Shelter, to mentor a teen without a supportive family in their girls' or boys' homes. If he is, don't ignore his voice. Maybe he's calling you to support Will Broadus' church plan in West Greenville in a specific way, or serve a particular individual or family in our own congregation. Maybe he's calling you to volunteer at the Women's Center, Piedmont Women's Center, through the 5K or through counseling a teen girl rejected by your family and scared of what's next. Maybe God is leading you to sponsor an orphan or to do foster care or to adopt. There's many beautiful pictures of the gospel and the God who cares for the fatherless, for the widow that are available all around us if we're willing. James says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. It can be by yourself. It can be with your family. It can be with your care group. It can be using your money or your time or your talents. I don't know exactly what gaze God might be putting on your heart to walk this out. But I do know that he wants us to walk this out. Being bought with a price means that we are no longer the ones calling the shots. Life in Christ means we live for another and have committed to pursuing his agenda. The last category that James mentions is our consecration, the test of our purity, holiness, our relationship with the world. Again, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows and their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The world is biblical shorthand for anything and everything that is at odds with the lordship of Christ over our lives. It's the hundred things a day that compete for our attention that is supposed to be given to God and what he has called us to. And James knows the danger for those calling themselves disciples is not that they will, in any likelihood, knowingly bend the knee to Satan and call him Lord instead. The danger is that they would allow a love affair with some enchantment of this world to pollute and defile a supposed allegiance to Christ. When James speaks of keeping ourselves unstained from this world, I think it's a helpful picture, but I think we need to not imagine your favorite shirt in a spot that needs to go through the wash with Tide to get the spot out. He's talking about corruption and contamination. Instead of a clean shirt, think drinking water. If we can show the next few slides. One in nine people around the world today, a total that reaches hundreds of millions, do not have access to clean drinking water. Meaning if we were representative of the world's population, 20 to 25 of us would be affected by this. It's more than a whole care group of our folks. Every day, every day, 3,000 to 4,500 children die because of waterborne illnesses around the world. Because their source of drinking water, 
was the same stream that their animals drink from and relieve themselves in. So, we're to scoop up a big picture of that and pour you a glass. Would you drink it? I mean, let's be honest. We don't even want to be in the same room as someone who's had anything GI-related in the last 48 hours. We're not going for this. When we think of being unstained from this world, this is what we need to think of. Not just a spot on a shirt, but something that corrupts the whole thing. Taking a drink and detecting hmm, notes of human or animal fecal matter isn't the direction we want to go. Contamination from the world isn't drinking a mostly pure glass of water with a bit of naughty stuff in it, it's drinking poison. It pollutes and defiles the whole soul and its effects are deadly. One in nine people around the world are constantly in danger of cholera, typhoid fever, dysentery, and hepatitis A. But as horrifying as that statistic is, we should be even more alarmed at the danger every one out of one of us are facing if we are flirting with or indulging in the defiling influence of this world. Is there an element of this world and all it has to offer that has captured your heart and is corrupting what should be your affection for God alone. Is it money or security or acceptance by others, a need for control or comfort or applause? Is it sex or pornography, Facebook or entertainment, alcohol or weed? Is it a desired relationship or an unwillingness to let go of bitterness? Is there anything about which you've declared, God, you can be Lord of my life in every area but this one? This one's mine. If so, he's not really Lord. And your religion is defiled. When we say yes to Christ, we say no to the world. Because God doesn't share his bride with competing suitors. Life in Christ reveals we are his in the multitude of daily pressures and little decisions where our faith is constantly tested. Friends, be very aware the world is unrelenting in its attempts to erode away our values, our standards, our affections as it competes with God for our time, our money, our energy, our passion. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
There's nothing easy about these categories. And when it comes to assessments of religion, our relationship with God that have words like stained, impure, defiled, worthless, We need to remember that James is addressing people that think they are right with God. Thinking they are religious. Walking out relationship with Him. And yet he's saying, with some there's clear evidence to the contrary. And we need to take assessment. He wants us to look for signs of spiritual life. Signs that the Spirit of God is at work with you. Is there evidence? Are you being empowered to live differently? Friends, if God is not involved, obviously your religion is worthless. But if He is giving us life, well, guess what? That means that life will be pure and undefiled because of where it comes from. The question isn't whether we do enough of these things to merit pleasing God, but whether or not it is clear that God has birthed a work within us. Let me plead with you, don't try to fake it. Don't put on a show. Don't just go through the motions. God's not fooled. You may deceive yourself. But that's the wrong judge. The good news is, you can have the real thing. If you've been taking stock this morning and find your religion worthless, what a frightening place to be. That is supposed to be a frightening place. That's why James puts it before us. It should be shocking. And it should be a thought that we want to banish from our minds. If you are there. Hearing these things this morning. Realize. You don't have to stay there. It doesn't have to be. Your permanent state. It doesn't have to be what is declared over you on that final day. If God is exposing emptiness in your religion, let me encourage you to start by thanking Him. Thanking Him for exposing that and revealing it today instead of on the last day. Because right now, there's something that can be done. If he has you hearing this, it's because he wants you to respond. He wants you to be made aware so that you can exchange the emptiness of your religion with the life that Christ offers freely to you. The beginning of the message we read from Isaiah chapter 1 where God was railing against the emptiness of Israel's religious practices. You may remember, he said, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove your evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's about all of life. It's about heart action, not the motions, not the external religious activities. Let's read one more verse. Verse 18. God says, Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
Friends, there is only one who perfectly controlled his speech. Only one. There's only one who selflessly gave of himself to those in need and remained utterly unstained by the world. Only one. Our response as he exposes things, whether it reveals that there is real relationship and there needs to be one, or whether it's revealing there is relationship, but we need to make sure we're pursuing the purity that he calls us to. We, we need to pursue the type of communication that honors him. We need to care for those around us. He can be exposing and revealing those things, convicting of those things as well. Whichever place we find ourselves in, the response is the same. Confess your sins to him. He is faithful. He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is amazing news. Where your religion has been worthless, he will impart Christ's righteousness and give you life in him. Here's what it boils down to. A thing that is as potent as the new birth, if it has taken place, it cannot be hidden. It cannot fail to make its presence felt. To have the life of God in us and remain unchanged is unthinkable. Friends, the stuff of everyday life is important to God and should be important to us because life in Christ affects all of life. Let's pray together and if the band could come forward. Lord, I, I pray for each of us here that have been challenged by your word. The things that have been hard, I pray that they have been things from you and that you will continue pursuing us until you complete the good work that you have begun. Lord, we need your spirit at work within us. We need your life empowering us. The types of things we're talking about, they're not things that are natural or that we're capable of on our own. But Lord, if you give life, there will be evidence of it. It will be beautiful. It will be compelling to the world around us. And that is what we need. So, would you fill us? Would you pursue us? Would you convict us? Help us to repent where necessary. Would you help us to live for you, we pray.